Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three. Wait! No jug cast, Gromit. We've forgotten the jug cast. The Judcast. We don't get delayed due to bad weather. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, and Ian Morrison. The Judcast, January 2010 edition. And Happy New Year from all of us here at the Jodcast. And we've got today Jen. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. Megan. Happy New Year. And Stuart. Happy 2010. And in the show this time, we're going to be rounding up the International Year of Astronomy and hearing what you can see in the night sky during January. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, stellar cannibalism in globular clusters, the role of magnetic fields in gamma ray bursts, and first observational evidence of a new type of supernova. Globular clusters contain some of the oldest known stars. Formed billions of years ago in the halos of what eventually became the galaxies we see today, globular clusters are roughly spherical collections of stars bound together by their own gravity. Our own Milky Way contains many such clusters, several of which were catalogued by Charles Messier in the 18th century. While most of the stars in globular clusters have ages of 12 to 13 billion years, some of them appear to be much younger. Most stars in globular clusters are reddish in colour, but there are some which appear bluer, as if they were much younger. Because they appear to have been left behind by the general evolution of the rest of the stars in the cluster, many of which have already evolved into red giants, this population of stars is known as the blue stragglers. First identified in the 1950s, these peculiar stars appear to regress from old age back to a more youthful appearance, gaining a second lease of life, but there is more than one theory that explains this phenomenon. In research published in Nature on Christmas Eve, two teams describe observations that provide important clues that may explain the process. One team, led by Francesco Ferraro at the University of Bologna, used the Hubble Space Telescope to examine the stars in the globular cluster M30. What they found was that the blue stragglers in this tightly bound cluster are, on average, more massive than the rest of the stars in the cluster, and actually comprise two distinct populations, suggesting that they formed in two different ways. One method is via stellar collisions. Globular clusters are very dense objects where stars are comparatively closely packed, especially near the centre, so collisions between stars are far more likely than they are in the more sparsely populated region of space where our own Sun exists. A collision between two stars would result in the creation of a much more massive star, with plenty of fuel being drawn into the star's core, effectively regenerating it. Collisions are not the entire picture, however. Another way to rejuvenate a star is by mass transfer. Many stars do not exist in isolation like the Sun, but in binary or multiple systems. In a binary system, where one star reaches the red giant phase and begins expanding, some of the material can be drawn onto the surface of the companion star, if they are close enough together. When this happens, more fuel is available for the second star, allowing it to burn bluer for longer, and the end result is a blue straggler with a white dwarf companion the endpoint of stellar evolution for a red giant. 
In the second paper, published in the same issue of Nature, two researchers from the University of Wisconsin-Madison examined the population of blue stragglers in the less dense open cluster, NGC-188. Open clusters are much less dense than globular clusters, and their stellar populations generally have a younger average age than those of globular clusters. What they found in NGC-188 was that 16 of the cluster's 21 blue stragglers are in binary systems with white dwarf companions, three times as many as was expected based on the numbers of normal stars found in binary systems. Together, these results show a consistent picture, where, in the less dense open clusters, blue stragglers form mainly through accretion from a companion star, while in the denser environment of a globular cluster, where collisions between stars are far more likely, blue stragglers form via both mechanisms. Gamma-ray bursts are highly energetic explosions, which release enormous amounts of energy in just a few seconds. So-called because they were first discovered through their intense gamma-ray emission, these explosions can be seen across the visible universe. The exact nature of the jets which give rise to this emission is, however, not certain. Different jet models predict very different properties of the magnetic fields present in the outflowing material. Some models suggest that weak magnetic fields are present only locally within parts of the jet where they are created by shockwaves, while other models suggest that large-scale magnetic fields are generated by the central engine itself and help to both accelerate and collimate the jets. While the Earth's magnetic field is not particularly strong, it is easy to detect with a simple compass. Detecting the strength and location of magnetic fields in an object many millions of light-years away is much, much harder, so determining which model is correct is not straightforward. Luckily, magnetic fields affect electromagnetic radiation, so the strength of the magnetic field can be inferred from the polarisation of a signal. The presence of a large-scale magnetic field would result in the oscillation of the electric field of an electromagnetic wave having a preferred orientation. Objects which emit light randomly have no preferred orientation of this field and are said to be unpolarised, so measuring how polarised the light is can tell you something about the strength and extent of the magnetic field in the object which generated the emission. Using a new instrument designed to measure the polarisation of visible light, a team led by Ian Steele at Liverpool John Moores University have measured the polarisation of the emission from the gamma-ray burst known as GRB 090102, first detected by the SWIFT satellite on the 2nd of January 2009. Because the emission from these objects is so short-lived, ground-based observations are best done by robotic telescopes, which can respond rapidly to alerts from gamma-ray satellites such as SWIFT. In this case, the optical observations were made with the Liverpool Telescope, a two-metre robotic optical telescope located in the Canary Islands. What the team found from their observations is that the light coming from the GRB in the first few minutes after the initial explosion was about 10% polarised, which suggests that large-scale magnetic fields are present in the jets. A polarisation of 10% is quite high for an astronomical object. If the magnetic fields in the jet were only present locally in shock fronts, then the overall polarisation would cancel out or be very small. The presence of such a high level of polarisation provides support to the idea that large-scale fields are present and have a great effect on the nature and dynamics of the outflows from a gamma-ray burst explosion. Stars the size and mass of our Sun end their lives by first expanding as red giants, then shrinking to white dwarfs. Stars heavier than this, however, come to a much more violent end. For stars with masses between about 10 and 100 times that of the Sun, they continue fusing hydrogen to form helium in the core until they run out of hydrogen. They then begin to fuse the helium nuclei together to form heavier elements such as carbon, nitrogen and oxygen. This carries on through the elements until iron, at which point the core collapses to form either a neutron star or a black hole, 
and the outer layers are expelled in a giant explosion known as a supernova. For stars heavier than 140 times the mass of the Sun, theories suggest that there may be another mechanism causing the explosion. Counterbalancing gravity inside a star is radiation pressure, the force of the photons themselves which helps stop a star collapsing under its own gravitational pull. In very massive stars, when the temperature rises above 1 billion Kelvin, these photons can undergo a process known as pair production, where they create an electron and its antiparticle, a positron. This reduces the number of photons in the star, reducing the radiation pressure and, if it happens on a large enough scale, allowing the star to begin collapsing. The result is the ignition of oxygen in the core, and the end of the star in what is known as a pair instability supernova. Models of this type of supernova are fairly robust, but have never been confirmed observationally. But now, a team led by Avishy Galyam at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel have discovered the first evidence of such an explosion taking place. They observed the supernova known as SN2007bi, and compared their observations with predictions from models of pair instability supernovae. The data fit the models very well, providing the first clear evidence of this type of explosion. Stars this size and much larger are thought to have been common in the early evolution of the universe, contributing significantly to the chemical evolution of the early galaxies. So confirmation of the models is an important step in understanding how the universe came to be the way we see it today. And finally, the International Year of Astronomy officially comes to an end on January the 9th and 10th with a closing ceremony held in Padua, Italy. 2009 saw thousands of individuals in over 148 countries get involved in taking astronomy out to the public in countless events happening around the planet, all celebrating 400 years since Galileo first turned a telescope to the sky. Amongst other events, numerous public star parties and viewing nights were held, many professional observatories hosted open days for the public, and many major projects were initiated, several of which will continue on in the years to come. The anniversary year may be coming to an end, but the cooperation will continue through the IYA Legacy Programme beyond IYA 2009, which will aim to sustain the network's activities and innovative concepts for education and public outreach in astronomy, which have been so successful throughout the year. Thanks, Megan. Now, the International Year of Astronomy has been quite a feat, and we thought that we'd introduce 2010 by giving our personal highlights of uh, astronomy throughout 2009. So, Stuart, what is your astronomical highlight from 2009? Well, my highlight has to be the 14th of May, which was a date that's embedded firmly in my head. That was the launch date for the European Space Agency's Planck and Herschel spacecraft, which both got launched on an Ariane 5 rocket from French Guiana in South America. And regular listeners will know that I work on Planck, so it's been a very busy year for me doing things. After it was launched, we spent three months taking the spacecraft to L2, which is a special point in space one and a half million kilometres away from the Earth. And during that time, we were cooling down all the instruments, making sure that everything was working as well as it possibly could be. And since then, we've been busy with the the survey of the sky. So uh, we've been surveying the sky now since August, and we've done over 75% of the sky so far. But it will take another few months into 2010, around April-May time, before we've completed the first sky survey. So it's been a very busy year, but lots of fun. And my second highlight, because I'm going to be greedy and have two, was the Dot Astronomy Conference in Leiden in the Netherlands at the beginning of December. And there were about 50 people turned up. That was a lot of fun. We had people from Worldwide Telescope, that's the Microsoft product, which you can now run in a web browser as well, and they're about to release a plug-in for Linux, so anyone with Linux will be able to 
to look at Worldwide Telescope as well. And Worldwide Telescope is really an amazing tool now. You can even load FITS files in and display them on the sky. One of the developers from that was there. We also had um, some talks from people at Google who were talking about the application for the Android telephone operating system, which lets you look around the sky. So you can say, type in moon or Venus, and then it will give you an arrow showing you what direction you should rotate yourself in order to find them. It just gives you an arrow. It uses the GPS to work out where you are. It uses the tilt tip sensors and the compass to work out what angle and orientation you're pointing the telephone in. And it shows you around the sky, which is is really good. And it makes the sky interactive. That sounds like a brilliant application. I, I, I can't wait to, to see a prototype of it. Oh, well, it's, it's more than a prototype. It's actually released and you can get it for your own phone if you have an ah. Android operating system. Ah, which I don't. Because I've seen... a. I've seen there's a lot of AR applications coming out, and I was reading... Is this all augmented reality? Yes, I was reading that, that even though the take-up was slow in 2009, it's predicted to, to really uh, explode in 2010, that this kind of... Uh, the, the applications which you can download, stick on your phone, and then it'll tell you what street you're looking at or where the nearest tube station is and things like that. Yeah, and for those type of applications, they usually use the camera in the phone and they overlay information on an actual image on your phone of the view that's ahead of you. But for for this one, they don't do that because cameras in phones are not usually that capable of showing you the night sky very well in a live Mm -hmm. way. So they don't bother using the camera. That helps save batteries and things. Mm -hmm. And they they just give you a a star map, really, and, and nice big friendly arrows pointing to the objects you're trying to find. Ah, so, but that whole conference was lots of fun and we had people talking about the internet and astronomy and all sorts of exciting ways that people have been doing things right so uh jen what about you well if Stuart's going to be greedy and have two highlights i think i'm going to be even more greedy and have three Ooh. i think that first of all i have to say joining the jogcast in april has to be a highlight of 2009 yes i'm sucking up to you guys oh thank you <laughs> we'll stop <laughs> calling you a junior now <laughs> it's made my year a lot more fun, I think. I've learned a lot more about astronomy than I'd have learned otherwise. Uh, apart from that, personally for me, in August I got to go on my first observing trip as part of my PhD. I went to the GMRT in India, which is the giant meter wave radio telescope, and that was a lot of fun. It was my first chance to go to an observatory that wasn't Jodrell Bank and actually get to use a telescope for my research. And my third highlight is the moon watch in October, which was my first experience of taking telescopes out and engaging with the public. And we got to show them the moon and also Jupiter and four of Jupiter's moons. Well, that was in Piccadilly Gardens in Manchester. That was fun. Yeah, it was really great to sh- show people that you can actually see things from a, a major city centre. So those are my three highlights. Well, if we're talking about um, being able to engage with the sky in India, that's exactly what I was doing. Uh, Copycat. And that was yeah, I know. <laughs> I got to see um, the night sky at dusk every day for six months. So I got to see the movement of the stars, the planets, how everything worked in such a, a real visible and, and tangible way. So that really brought home to me what I've been talking about in the planetarium for so long, being able to put it into uh, into practice. Uh, my second highlight is uh, probably Jodcast Live which was an amazing event, an amazing experience. It was really good to meet the listeners and, and the full team for once and seeing Nick back on the Jodcast. That's that's always good. And I think my third little highlight was uh, another bit of pavement astronomy, but this was during the solar eclipse in Taiwan. 
where I uh, picked up uh, a cardboard box, plunged a hole through with a chopstick, and then uh, showed people outside uh, the uh, the sun as it went through its eclipse. A uh, little pinhole, well, a huge pinhole camera. Very, very rough and ready, but it worked. One of my highlights was um, Jogcast Live as well. That was a really fun evening for me down here in Australia. Um, but unlike the rest of you lot, I didn't get much of a chance to recover because the very next weekend was Astrofest, which was a huge astronomy festival that we've been planning for quite a long time, which we ran in Perth. And we had 4,000 people through in one afternoon to come look at the sky through telescopes. We had guest speakers, we had rocket launches, and we had planetariums and all sorts of stuff. So um, that was a, a pretty big highlight for me. Excellent. Now to hear about more people's uh, experiences of the International Year of Astronomy, here is our interview section. Okay, joining us now is Nancy Atkinson from Universe Today, and also one of the people behind the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Welcome to the Jodcast, Nancy. Thanks, Stuart. And thanks for joining us in this busy time between Christmas and New Year while everyone's visiting family and, and friends. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been busy, but uh, it's always nice to take a little time out for astronomy. It is. Now, as I said there, you're one of the people behind the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. And can you just tell us um, what's happened over the past 365 days? Well, we successfully uh, put out 365 podcasts in 2009, and it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of different people come up with some very innovative podcasts and very informative podcasts. And uh, we had people doing it from all around the world, which was really exciting. And it was especially exciting for me because um, I got to uh, virtually meet a lot of people um, online. So um, I really enjoyed that and and really enjoyed hearing all of the voices of, of astronomy from all around the world. You know, the amateurs and the armchair astronomers and also professional astronomers and uh, people that work on space missions and, and that kind of thing too. So it was really fun. And the exciting thing coming up now is that uh, we're going to continue the podcast in 2010. Right. Have you already got people to fill the slots or are you still look, are you looking for more people in 2010? We um, are still looking for more people. Right now we have about 200 days that have been spoken for, but uh, that of course... Wow, already? Yes, already. So uh, that's pretty exciting. We've had um, a lot of people from last year who decided they wanted to do it again. They were uh, courageous enough to do it again. And uh, and then we also have uh, some new people who you know have been uh, listeners of the podcast and, uh, this past year and decided... They wanted to get in on the act, too, so that's pretty exciting. But, of course, you know, that still leaves us with 165 days about <laughs> to, to fill. So um, um, we do have some days um, in at the end of January that we kind of need to fill. So if anybody listening here is uh, adventurous and can come up with a podcast kind of quickly, we'd be uh, more than willing to uh, to let you have have a date in January. And the topic can be anything to do with astronomy. Yeah, anything to do with astronomy or um, space missions or, uh, you know, pretty much anything that lights your fire or uh, that uh, that you're interested in or knowledgeable about. I have a question about the last year of podcasts, and this is perhaps a dangerous question to ask a bit. Do you have any particular favorites of your own that you that you really enjoyed during the year? Oh boy, that's a. I don't mean to say any favoritism or anything, but <laughs> that's kind of a tough question. Um, I guess I enjoyed. There was there was one person who um, talked about building 
uh, an observatory on his his father-in-law's ranch. Uh, it just was a, a really neat podcast. Uh, there were there, he had sound effects where there were cows mooing and <clears throat> and all this stuff, and it kind of the uh, the building process was kind of fraught with adventure, and it was just a really nice story. He had his kids talking on it and uh, on the podcast, and it was it was just a nice kind of uh, um, feel good show. Um, other favorites were talking to people about the Apollo missions. Um, some people interviewed uh, some of the people that were involved, um, and also the Voyager missions. Um, Dr. Ed Stone was interviewed actually a couple of times by a couple of different people, and that was really fun to hear his perspective on things. You know, now that the Voyager missions are, uh, you know, 40 years on, so that's pretty cool. Well, we look forward to 2010 and the 365 Days of Astronomy continuing. I guess it's keeping the same name. Yes. Subtitle yeah. Year 2 or something? You know, I, we haven't come up with a, a great subtitle. You know, it says it's the uh, podcast of the International Year of Astronomy, but um, I guess this is a legacy project of the International Year of Astronomy. So we're going to try to keep the, the spirit of the International Year of Astronomy alive and, and keep it going. Very good. Well, we wish you luck, and as you said, if any of our listeners feel like turning their hands to making their own podcast, they can get in touch with you. Um, how did they go about doing that? Um, you can go to the 365 Days of Astronomy website, which is 365daysofastronomy.org, and uh, you can email us at uh, signup at 365daysofastronomy.org, or you can email me directly nancy at 365daysofastronomy.org. And is there anything particular they have to tell you when they want to sign up? Um, if they have a date in mind, uh, if they you also on the 365 Days of Astronomy website, you can go to the calendar tab and you can see what days are still available. So if you have a day in mind that you would like to um, do a podcast, that would, that would be helpful. Otherwise, if you don't, you can, I'll assign you a date. Um, and if you want to give me an idea of your topic, that would be just fine, too. Right. Well, we we advise all our listeners to think about contributing because it's been a really successful project this year. And it's been really fun listening all the, to all the different perspectives from around the world, as you said before. Yeah. Yeah. We have um, about 30,000 downloads a week. So, um, you know, a lot of people are listening to these podcasts. So if you want your voice to be heard, uh, this is a great way to do it. People may recognize your name, actually, as apart from listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast, they may recognize you if they go to the Universe Today website, because you're one of the, the main writers on there, aren't you? Yes, yes, I am. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've been writing for Universe Today since 2004, um, and uh, it's a, a great little website where you can get a lot of news, and uh, we try to keep things updated as quickly as possible. Um, we've just added some new writers, so hopefully we're going to have some more um, exciting and uh, fun things to read about, especially coming up in 2010. Um, so people can go and check out Universe Today for more up-to-date news than the Jodcast because we're only once every few weeks, um, whereas Universe Today provides news every day. So that website is www.universetoday.com. Nancy, thank you very much for talking to us. My pleasure, Stuart. Thanks for having me on. I am in the infamous Astro Bunker with Adrian, Richard and Nikki from the Newbie Astronomical Society. We've been talking about the end of the International Year of Astronomy on the Jogcast and I think one of the big 
events that's happened this year has been the use of Twitter for the Moon Watch and the Meteor Watch, and that's come about because of you guys. So could you maybe start by telling us how all of this happened? How did it start? What made you start using Twitter? Yeah, okay. Um, well, it happened back on the 27th of May this year, um, or last year, once this has gone out. Um, basically, our society is a very small society, and... Um, one of the main things we like to do is a lot of outreach. We don't have an observatory or anything like that. We like to be able to just take astronomy to people. So what we were doing is um, we were doing a week-long exhibition and a uh, some sidewalk astronomy with solar observing at a local nature discovery centre. Because of this, BBC Radio Berkshire decided to come and give us an interview. Thought it was a nice story. So we had Maggie Philbin come on down and we were talking to her and during one of the intervals... She said, do you use Twitter for astronomy? And, of course, everybody said, what's Twitter? <laughs> Apart from me, of course. <laughs> As Nikki keeps on saying. Yeah. <laughs> I'd heard of it. Anyway, um, after a little bit of deliberation, we decided to do a, um, a moon watch two or three days later. How hard can it be? <laughs> The reason we chose that date was that the weather forecast for three days ahead was pretty good. I mean, yeah. the whole of that week, we had great weather in May, uh, and we were pretty sure that we'd be able to, to get some clear viewing of the moon, and, and pretty much anybody in, in the country would be able to go out and see it for themselves. So that was the, the reason we did it at short notice yeah. on that day. Yeah, and I'd never really played with Twitter before. I used Facebook, and... I'd heard of Twitter and I'd never really got into it and never bothered. So I was given this task by the Society and Maggie Philbin to go forth and conquer Twitter. <laughs> so I, I did what everybody else does. I opened up an account and I was completely stuck. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And um, one of our images said, right, I'll come to your back garden and we'll, we'll, do, we'll do this, this Twitter moon watch just for the laugh to see what happens. So I was in the greenhouse with tomato plants around me with the laptop because that's as far as I could go with the internet connection and he was out in the back garden with his telescope imaging the moon and, and Jupiter and things like that. Um, actually, it was Saturn. And halfway through the evening, I got a phone call from Maggie Philbin saying, use a hashtag. I started using a hashtag and then all of a sudden I couldn't keep up. All It, it just it took over and um, I didn't know what I was doing or anything like that but my fingers hurt afterwards and we had over a thousand people at least uh, some quoted about four thousand people um, joined in on that one thing of the evening the, the most followed picture of the evening was actually the worst picture of the evening a, an image of Saturn the thing is it was taken there and then and I tweeted it saying right this image has just been taken of Saturn by Chris and uh, it was really fuzzy and not particularly wonderful over a thousand hits <laughs> that, that that picture got because it was there and then it was real people saw it there and then so um we finished when the sun when when the sun set when the moon set and we went oh and and backed off and and went to bed and everything i woke up in the morning and i went through the stats and was blown away really i mean over at least over a thousand people joined in um we had over two and a half thousand people uh look at our um our images and things we were doing and we had loads of followers we had nearly a hundred followers from nothing <laughs> in one evening with a war this is good still complete novices so 
I continued to use Twitter because we made a couple of friends that evening and everything, and we decided to do a meteor watch for the Perseids. But for this one, we'd do it a little bit better, and we'd be more organised, and we'd use the shed, <laughs> which we're in now. You can hear the rain on the roof. You'll hear the drips of water coming through the leak in a moment. Um, so we'll use the shed, and we'll get more people involved. We got a blog going, we got our website tidied up a little bit more, and we're still complete novices. Of course, I'd used it a bit more, and I was then bringing in Nick, Nicky and Richard and a few other people to start to use Twitter as well. Obviously, the Moon Watch, we were noticed what we did in the Moon Watch, and then we started saying we're going to do the Meteor Watch, so we got quite a lot of people following us. We, we got about 500 people prior to the, the Meteor Watch, and the media noticed it. And basically, in the space of one evening, our follower count went up to two and a half thousand. This is where the IYA side of it came in because the RAS issued a press release because we joined up with people like IYA 2009, that's Steve Owens and co. And their connections got the press release out. And I think the combination of people on Twitter plus the press release, and it was something new, it just really took off. The sad thing was, we had very bad weather, so we actually didn't see a great deal. We were also invaded by the media, so actually um, fortunate, really, that we didn't have that good weather because we wouldn't have been able to do a great deal of imaging anyway. We were, <laughs> we had people trying to do uh, their um, pieces to camera in the astro- very cramped astro bunker. That's right. We all turned into lovies for a little while. Well, I did, unfortunately. Um, I think I just got carried away and Steve pointed a camera in my face and I broadcast into the masses and you flounced and around yeah we, we minced and flounced and, and and everything else around and of course we had all the cameras and we had uh, radio and everything here it was it was a great great buzz that evening it was very tiring I mean we were up for what 48 hours almost non-stop I think we had an hour's sleep didn't we uh, Nikki and Richard actually slept on the floor of the Astro Bunker that evening for an hour before another radio crew turned up in the morning to give them an interview so, um, yeah, we, we got a lot of popularity that evening, uh, but we didn't realise until the second evening how popular it was because we knocked Miley Cyrus off of the top spot on Twitter. We became <laughs> trending topic. And um, our blog alone had 25,000 hits on it. And um, we've done some stats, as I showed you earlier, and, well, basically... When it was 20, if I do the hashtag Meteor Watch, this is just Meteor Watch because people are using Meteor and Meteor Shower and everything as well. So if I put those, any, everything to do with Meteors, 24,934 people. So that tallies quite nicely with the blog as well. So we, we had a lot of people um, on those two evenings following that. There's going to be a couple there from the, the, the latest one, but we had about, uh, I think, about two, two and a half, three thousand people follow us on that one. Um, but we got a great following and the thing is what people enjoyed the most is we weren't taking ourselves seriously at all and we wanted to have a bit of fun and what we were trying to do is to get people to basically look up and we're not trying to be clever astronomers or anything I'm certainly not a clever astronomer everybody else around me is they're they're very good Um, but the nice thing is is when we get tweets coming in like when I grow up I want to be an astronomer or I've seen a meteor for the first time this evening it's absolutely fantastic so we want to keep that going and make it more popular I mean astronomy is quite dry quite 19th century I think 
and Twitter's fantastic for for bringing it out to ordinary people and making it fun. And this is where, after the Meteor Watch, which was an astounding success, and really our feet didn't touch the ground for a week or two afterwards, we decided to make it a little bit more fun and introduce the trailers that we've done. <laughs> Um, which I think are almost more popular in the Twitter events, actually, but um, it's just one of those things. We, we, we wanted to have a bit of fun with it, and that's what we're trying to do, is is to have fun and make other people have fun. Twitter's so easy, easy to use. I think the other important thing is that other people joined in. <clears throat> Even though we were taken off air or offline, effectively, on Meteor Watch, it didn't matter because other people were doing things, and that's actually really what matters. Um, we might have kicked something off, but we've got no control over it, and it's what other people make of it that makes it work. And because they took the ball and ran with it, it took off. And I think that's, that's the really big success of the whole thing. And even though we were clouded out on almost most of the nights that we've had, other people have seen things and they've kept it alive. And it's that interaction that's made it work. If it was just us, I don't think it would have worked. This is why I, I described it as, as like lighting the blue touch paper and retiring. We uh, really just kicked the thing off and then everybody's taken it and, uh, and enjoyed it. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Yeah. It's about enjoying it. And yeah. we're, we're not trying to take it too seriously. There are some very interesting things to learn about, but the Twitter part of it is just a bit of fun. It's uh, social networking gone astro networking. <laughs> uh, but the nice thing is you can, you can be serious or you can be not so serious. You can be a novice or you can be a professional. It doesn't matter. I mean, I could go onto Twitter right now and I could ask a very, very senior professional astronomer a question and he will give me an answer. And likewise, somebody um, can ask me a question and I can give them an answer. Or we can, everyone can network together. So it is social net- networking for astronomy. And, and we've, we've kind of proved it, it works for astronomy. And other people who do their thing on Twitter as well, it's working for them. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of people doing their astronomy stuff on, on Twitter. And we're all turned into one big, like, nice family. It's quite nice, you know. You, you've got your, your core, which... Jodrell Bank a part of and now we are part of we feel very honoured you know um, and uh, you've got all the individuals on there as well and and the nice thing is uh, these events can happen and everybody pulls together uh, like Jodrell Bank joined in with um, with with the Moon Watch and the Meteor Watch uh, and we join in with any events they've got and li- likewise everybody else does the same so there's an event somewhere like the Great Look Up which was held back in the summer the end of the summer July I think end of July wasn't it um, we joined in with that and you know you help other people out as well and and the nice thing is it's just to make it fun and get as many people involved as possible because it's for everybody it's not just for a hardcore um, uh, number of elite people it's absolutely everybody and, and Twitter's so easy to use the main beauty of it is is you can link to things and link to other people and, 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 and link to subjects and you, it's it's not made complicated, and I think that's what makes it work the most. Yeah, up, up till now, I think traditionally, the usual route of getting into astronomy was to join a society. But a lot of people aren't aren't that serious. They don't know that they're going to like it. They don't want to spend a lot of money on uh, subscriptions to a society when perhaps it's not going to be their thing. They're not necessarily society people. Twitter, you can do it from your own home. You can do it in your own time. Uh, you can enjoy it just as much with a group of people that you get to know. Um, I think it is, it's taken over, really, from uh, a lot of the society activities that hobbies traditionally have had. 
Actually, I, I wouldn't entirely agree on that one. I don't think it replaces anything. It's another way of people getting involved and people who might never have anything else to do with astronomy, if this is their only contact, but they get to see a meteor for the first time, mm. then then it's succeeded as far as I'm concerned. But I don't think it replaces anything. It's just another way of communicating with people. And Twitter might be gone in a year's time. There might be something else that replaces it. But I think the basic idea of being available and reaching out to everybody, no matter who they are, is quite important. And if we've done that through Twitter, then I think it's been a success. I, I think you're right. It doesn't replace societies, but you have a whole new generation who are not society goers. They're not. That's not what they do. They, they're into more social networking. And if you can reach them through that, then you've, you've got a whole new audience. The nice thing is you can pick it up and put it down when you want to. You don't have to, like with our, our society, we, we, we meet up twice a month. If you pay your subs, you have to go twice a month. <laughs> with Twitter, it's free, and you don't have to be on there at a certain time. You don't have to do anything. It's internal up to you. You're in control, which is the nice thing. So you're in control of what information you see and what information you want, and uh, pick it up and put it down whenever you want to. Um, and I think that's one of the nice things with what happened on the Perseid Meteor Watch is a lot of people went, oh, I just sent something on the telly about these meteors, and they mentioned it's on Twitter great okay uh, let's have a look at it and they used the hashtag meteor watch and they went on there and they saw all these images they saw video they saw information coming from thousands of people and they could pick and choose all the bits they wanted to do and they could contribute as well i just seen one you know which is fantastic well i think that i just seen one is actually a very important part of it because one of the things i noticed with the gemidas in particular is there were, pa- there were patches of cloud well most of the country was cloudy there were just patches of clear and a few people who had a clear spot could say, I'm seeing lots of meteors, and that encouraged other people to keep trying. Because the biggest problem you have is people look outside, it looks fairly cloudy, so they give up. But if they know other people are seeing things, then they, it'll give them a chance to try a bit more. Or if people have got clear skies and not seeing anything, at least they know, they know not to waste their time. So it's a very useful thing for finding out what's happening now. If you had to wait the traditional routes to find out you know, how many meteors there are per hour or whatever people want to know, you might have to wait days or weeks, which is too late. So the, where Twitter really pays off is it tells you that people in Essex, for example, have got a clear patch and they are seeing several metres an hour, so it's worth a go. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, you can hear the rain on the, the roof <laughs> right now, a nice bit of atmosphere. It's not it's not a sound effect, it's real. Um, uh, yeah, that's the nice thing about it. It's um, you. Can, people were actually saying, I've seen one, or oh, I just saw two, I've just seen ten in the past half an hour. The, the, the problem we have with, with the Perseids is we had a moon which was in the way, and we had cloud almost instantaneously. After we had our clear spot, the cloud came in, and on the second night, we we lost the sky entirely. It was gone, uh, unfortunately. So um, we did another moon watch in the autumn. Uh, again, completely clouded out, which was a shame, but people still got involved. I mean, I did some, some um, uh, webcasting, uh, streaming live video of the moon we had 600 people get involved on twitter they loved it you know and they just wanted to see pictures of the moon and, and what's that feature so we, we did the moon moon watch uh, again successful but it would have been a lot better if it was clear and then we decided to do the biggie of the year the finale of the year obviously it wasn't going to be as big as the perseids because it was summertime and and everything else but the geminids were going to be a better meteor shower and we did find this when we were doing it. Um, there were more people being a lot more positive. We got very 
a, a very few people saying I haven't seen nothing this media watches a load of rubbish we got a lot of people saying wow I've just seen one or oh, I've just seen two or I've just seen three it was very very positive again the weather did spoil it on the second evening the first evening we had one minute it was clear one minute it was, it was cloudy so we were able to catch meteors and so was everybody else but again an astounding success and it got a lot of people joining in and a lot of people enjoying themselves so we've taken a step back from what we've done and it's the end of the year it's the end of the international year of astronomy um and we've looked at the stats um our tweets we're looking at nearly 30,000 tweets throughout the year that's people actually mentioning something regarding moon watch or meteor watch on twitter um if you look at the if you add maybe a 10 percent um bit of leniency there for the people who didn't use the meteor watch hashtag like me when i first started doing it probably um you're looking over well over thirty thousand people joined in there so it's a big thing that, that happened here um and it's not caused by us we just as nikki said lit the touch paper and then everybody else just got involved so you're basically saying come on gang you're ringing a bell <laughs> let's go and do some astronomy and everyone goes yeah that's a good idea let's go and do it so we do it and we do it on Twitter and, and it's great fun so we, we've had Christmas and we haven't done any astronomy we've decided now to, to take a step back and regroup and we're looking forward now to what we're going to do in 2010 we have plans but um, I could tell you but I'd have to kill you afterwards <laughs> um Again, we, we want to make it fun. There might be another trailer or two, I don't know. Um, we want to be able to get people involved, um, like the Jodcast, like Jodrell Bank, like other organisations and other people on Twitter, get everybody involved. One thing we would like to do, though, if we did an event like this, is to get as many people imaging around the the country or the world as possible, simultaneously, so everyone's got something to look at. Um, and that would be nice. So, yes, I think that, that's that's the thing that really makes it work. If if people can put up images of what they've taken now, that's what matters. You can have the most fancy image in the world, but if it's five or six days old, it's much less interesting. People want to see what's happening now, and they also want to see something which relates to what they might see themselves. Just because an experienced observer thinks it's not a very good image that might be what you get to see through a small telescope. And that's much more meaningful to somebody on the street who doesn't know about astronomy than some of the fancy pictures. So it's all about what people can see for themselves, and they can join in and say what they see. Some of the best things that came out of the Perseid meteor watch were things like, I've seen a meteor for the first time. Wow, I've never seen such a bright meteor. And the, even the people who said, I'm really disappointed. I can't see it because of the light pollution. That all matters because that's what ordinary people are thinking. And to me, that's, that's the real success of it. In a way, the numbers leave me unmoved. It's what individual people have been saying. And if people have gone out, seen things they wouldn't have seen otherwise, then it's a success in my, in my book. One of Richard's comments when we were doing the Perseids was, if I get ten people to look up and see a meteor for the first time, I'll be happy. Were you happy? Uh, it was probably several hundred, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, that's what we want to do. We want to just bring it out to people because, like I said before, astronomy has got that horrible stigma attached to it, as in it's for nerds and geeks, it's very dry, very boring, and it's not. For instance, yeah, only one of us is wearing an anorak. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah okay, I, I own up. But seriously, the other thing to remember is oh, we tend to think of the people who just managed to see something and were successful. 
There were a lot more who weren't. Um, but they were still good-humoured about it. And I think that says a lot, too, about Twitter and the kind of people who join in that kind of thing. Most astronomers are unsuccessful most of the time. But I think ordinary people appreciate how difficult it is to get to see these things, but it is worth the effort. So it's, it's, it's the whole mixture of things. It doesn't have to be the best this or the best that. It's what ordinary people are doing about joining in themselves and seeing what they can see and enjoying it for themselves. That's what really what matters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yes, we will be doing this again. Um, <laughs> we haven't got any firm, solid plans. We have played with a few ideas. So um, We have some new toys. We have some new toys now, yes. And um, keep your eye out on Twitter. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned. And I'd like to say a very big thank you to all the people who supported us. Um, that's made a huge difference because without their support, it wouldn't have worked the way it has. Uh, there are at least a dozen names I can think of of people who've just picked up the ball, run with it. We didn't even know who they were when this started. Yeah. But uh, in a way, it'd be nice to think that they've become friends of ours um, and they've really helped helped it to work. It's not just what we've done. I've got people trying to contact me. <laughs> I think we'd better wrap it up there. Um, yeah. Just quickly, for each of you, have you got a personal highlight of the International Year of Astronomy? Meteor Watch definitely was a, uh, an eye-opener. And, uh, yeah, we want to do it again, definitely. Uh, and that and the We Are Astronomers video, which is in uh, Planetariums, blew me away as well. I like that. And, of course, the Jodcast. So there <laughs> you go. Uh, for me, it would definitely have to be the Meteor Watch with the Perseids. Uh, the buzz that second evening was absolutely incredible. Um, it might never happen again, but it was quite extraordinary when you realise how many people around the world were joining in on something which had been started almost on a whim. Uh, that was quite an amazing sensation. Yeah, I guess the uh, the, the, the Perseid watch would have to be uh, my highlight as well. Just sitting in front of a computer and seeing every time it refreshed, every couple of minutes, over 100 tweets coming in, more than you could possibly read and certainly more than you could reply to. And all really good-humoured, some really funny, um, some sad because they couldn't see what they wanted to see because of the weather or the light pollution but yeah um people all around the world just joining in and having fun well thank you very much for letting me into the astro bunker today and good luck with all your future projects thank, thank you, you very thank much you. thank you okay on the line is carolina ertman from leiden observatory hi carolina happy new year hi good happy new year to you and uh, well, we've now ended the international year of astronomy yes we have it hasn't taken yet well You've had a very busy year because um, one of your roles is that you're the coordinator for Universe Awareness. That's right. And I think we talked to you about Universe Awareness back in August 2006 at the International Astronomical Union's General Assembly in Prague. Indeed. And we were asking you about what Universe Awareness was. So for people, listeners of the Jodcast who are more recent than that, can you just remind us what Universe Awareness is and what you've been doing during the Year of Astronomy? Sure. So uh, Universal is a program that aims to use astronomy to stimulate very young children um, in underprivileged environments and in less underprivileged environments. Um, so using the scale and the beauty of the universe to inspire young children. And of course that engages them in astronomy and engages them in science, but also engages them in uh, thinking about uh, our place in the universe. And what sort of things have happened for you in in the International Year of Astronomy for Universe Awareness? Okay, well, um, what, where, where can I start? There's so much has happened. Well, to start with, we've grown tremendously throughout the year. 
and there are now 38 recorded countries of Kisanini this awareness, which is amazing. And uh, it then results an interesting phenomenon. Some people have taken this cornerstone and just gone off and done it on their own uh, without necessarily telling us. And this is, so there's even more happening, and that's brilliant. So, so uh, if uh, anyone has done that, I invite them to get in touch with us, and then they get the benefit of the whole network of all the other 38 countries. So by that, do you mean that teachers or parents or just people have gone off and done their own activities following the, the lead of Universal Awareness? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Lots of them. And uh, we hear them sometimes maybe on a, you know, on a, on a poster at the IU General Assembly in Rio, for example. There are lots of people reporting um, Universal Awareness activities that we're not necessarily aware of. And there are fantastic things, you know, books for children and a stargazing session for young children in the most uh, unexpected areas and just really beautiful initiatives. And other, maybe other highlights of Universal Awareness this year is it's grown and it's, been, it's reached a point where it's been established in, say, uh, Uruguay, for example, that it's now on the primary school curriculum in the country. So Universal Awareness have been adopted at the school curriculum level and that is of course you know the biggest achievement you can imagine to have it that well rooted in a country so that's uruguay in south america yes that's right and it's just one example um i could go on and tell what every country has been doing <laughs> but this one is particularly impressive as well as universal awareness you've obviously been heavily involved with the international year of astronomy in many other ways do you have any of your own your own personal highlights of the the last year? Um, yes, I do. Uh, personal highlight, I think, was the Star Party opening the International Year of Astronomy, which was uh, New Year's Eve 2008-2009. I was in Sutherland at the South African Astronomical Observatory, and the whole plateau where all the science telescopes were had been made available to the public that night. So amateur astronomers came with their own telescopes, families came and camped in the cold uh, mountain top there in Sutherland, in, in South Africa, and the, the atmosphere was just absolutely brilliant. And I was, uh, I was just running around answering questions and taking pictures, and just it just put me on a high. People's enthusiasm and, and how interested they were in astronomy just put me on a high that I think carried me through the year, definitely. I can imagine how exciting that was because I have been to Sutherland once and it's a really amazing skyscape you get from there. Absolutely stunning. Incredibly beautiful. And, and there was the public right up there with the telescopes and the astronomers and their own uh, gear and there was just the fantastic atmosphere. Absolutely brilliant. Wonderful. Now, do you have any hopes as we go into 2010? Uh, yes. One thing is we haven't had time to do everything we wanted to do. So we're firmly on continuing this, this celebration and, and going on. So we're going to keep going as much as we can. And there's lots of projects that have been started or are planned at a very advanced stage and just haven't been carried out yet because it was so popular and so many things happened. So those are definitely going to continue. Well, that's great. And we look forward to more um, happening in 2010. So we'll put a link to the Universal Awareness website on our show notes. And Carolina, thank you very much for taking the time out on New Year's Day to talk to us on the Jodcast.
Thank you, Stuart. Happy New Year. So there you go. That is、uh, the International Year of Astronomy. It has been an amazing year. It has, and let's hope everyone keeps the enthusiasm going through into 2010. Now, someone who has、uh, been communicating his work for many, many years,、uh, including into his fifth year on the Jodcast, here's Ian, Ian Morrison to tell us what you can see in the night sky during January. The night sky for January 2010. Well, if we look towards the south in the mid to late evening during January, we have one of the most beautiful skyscapes that we can see in the northern hemisphere. At its heart is Orion the Hunter, with its three stars forming its belt, and just below the sword of Orion, with the Orion Nebula, a fuzzy little object. If you look with binoculars, those three stars are very good pointers. If you go up and to the right. You'll come first to the Hyades cluster, at the heart of Taurus the bull, with Aldebaran, the red eye of the bull. Now, in fact, Aldebaran is not part of the Hyades cluster. It's about halfway between us and the cluster, and whereas the cluster is actually moving leftwards across the sky, Aldebaran is moving south. Just happens to fit in very nicely. If you keep going beyond the Hyades in the same direction, you'll see that little beautiful cluster of stars. The Pleiades cluster M forty five, often called the Seven Sisters, but in fact, with your unaided eye, you'll probably either see about five of them, or if the seeing is very good, the transparency in your eyes are very good, you might well see nine. It's very rare, I think, you'd ever actually see seven. Above Taurus, we have the constellation of Auriga, with the bright star Capella at its、uh, at its height, really at the top. Uh, it's got some very nice clusters within it, open clusters like the Pleiades and the Hyades, because the Milky Way is running through that part of the sky, and they're M thirty six, M thirty seven, M thirty five, I think, and binoculars might show those a little fuzzy little blobs. Certainly, fairly powerful binoculars will. If you go down to the left of the three stars of Orion's belt, you come to Sirius, the Dog Star, the brightest star in、uh, Canis Major. We don't see the bottom half of Canis Major very well from our northern climb, sadly. Nice thing about Sirius is it has a little companion. It's a white dwarf star, about ninth magnitude. In fact, if Sirius wasn't there, you could see it quite easily with binoculars. But it is lost in the glare of its giant companion star. But a very, very high-quality telescope with very clean optics can actually see this little white dwarf. It's the same sort of star as our sun will actually end up being. At the very end of its life, well, up to the left of Orion, if you go、um, above Betelgeuse, this very giant red star, it's a supergiant. It's about the size, in fact, of the orbit of, of Jupiter. So it's an enormous star, probably one of the stars in the northern hemisphere that's next likely to explode in a supernova explosion. You carry on up to the left, you come to Gemini with the stars Castor and Pollux, the heavenly twins. And、uh, that's a nice little area as well. Between Betelgeuse and the lower left of Auriga, with binoculars, you might pick up a rather nice、uh, star cluster as well near the foot of the upper twin. And then down to the left of、uh, Gemini, you actually have Procyon in Canis Minor, with one other star really only visible very easily. So do enjoy looking at that rather beautiful part of the heavens. Binoculars will be a great help. Okay, well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter has perhaps been the star of the last few months, seen very well in the the west, 
southwest uh, j- just after s- sunset. It's now getting pretty close to the sun. It's still in Capricornus, and you can still see it, uh, but it sets by about 7.30 p.m. in mid-January, so you haven't got very much time, and, of course, it's going to be at low elevation. Magnitude about minus 2. Angular size is still about 35 arc seconds, so if you have a good night when the seeing isn't bad, you may have a chance to see some detail on the surface, like the equatorial bands. They've been showing up quite well in recent weeks. But really, from about mid-January, for a month or so, we're going to have to wait uh, to see it next time, when it comes around before dawn. Now, Saturn has, in fact, passed behind the sun. It's rising now at about 10.30 p.m. in the middle of January, and it actually goes due south, that's transit, when it's highest in the sky at an elevation of 39 degrees, at about 5 a.m. So if you don't mind getting up early, you'd have a very good chance to have a look at Saturn. Uh, The angular size of the disk is about 18 arc seconds. Because Saturn's a long way away, that doesn't actually change very much as we move in orbit around the Sun. Um, Now, as you probably know, the ring system was edge-on a few months ago. It's now still only at 4.9 degrees at the beginning of January, so they'll still appear very thin. And that's one reason why Saturn isn't quite as bright now as it often is. If you have a small telescope, you'll easily pick up its brightest satellite, Titan, which is at magnitude 7.8. And if you've perhaps got a telescope of 8 inches or more, you could well see quite a number of others. I'll mention those in the highlights coming up. Well, Mercury, that passed in front of the Sun, that's called inferior conjunction, on the 4th of January, and it reappears in the pre-dawn sky by the middle of the month. It's probably highest in the sky from the 17th to the 21st of January, but it's still only six degrees above the horizon, about one hour before sunrise. So it's fairly hard to spot. It's not what we call its best apparition. There are others when it's higher in the sky, just because of the angle of the ecliptic with the horizon. Well, Mars really is the star of this month. It's now becoming prominent in the evening sky, rising soon after sunset at the beginning of January. It'll be well up in the south and highest in the sky around midnight. Um, I'll say more about that um, in, in the highlight later on. Um, it crossed from Cancer into Leo, that's moving eastwards, on the 1st of December, and carried on moving eastwards until December the 20th. Then it began its retrograde path westwards and returns into Cancer on January the 9th. So for most of January, it'll be back inside Cancer. Finally, of course, it will carry on change its direction again and move eastwards again, passing back into Leo. But that will take a while. Uh, The magnitude increases from about minus 1 to minus 1.2. It's not a lot of difference. And the angular size slowly increases from about 13 to 14 arc seconds. But more of that very shortly. Venus is passing behind the sun during January and is at superior conjunction. That's when it lies pretty much behind the sun, on January the 11th. We're going to have to wait until the middle of February before we have a reasonable chance of spotting it in the evening sky after sunset. Okay, so what about the highlights of the month? Well, we do have a meteor shower. It's called the Quadrantids. It's basically the early morning of January the 4th. Would, in principle, give you the best chance of observing it. It should peak at about 5 a.m. that morning. Sadly, this year, we're not best placed to observe it. 
as the moon is just four days after full and so brightening the sky. Okay, the, the moon is going to be well over towards the west by then, but nevertheless it means we'll only see the brighter of the meteors. The radiant, which is where the meteors appear to come from, is in the constellation of Bootes, not far below the tail of Ursa Major, the great bear. And that was where there was once a small constellation called the Quadrant. And that was a device used by early astronomers, most notably Tycho, to measure the elevation of stars as they crossed the meridian. Given the time when that happens, you can then work out the star's celestial coordinates. The peak hourly rate of the quadrant is about 200, but they're not particularly bright, so a good dark observing sight will help, and as I've said, the moon isn't really going to be a great help to us this year. Well, I've already said that Mars is really going to be at its best during January and February. We have opposition when the Earth passes between Mars and the Sun on Jan the 29th, and in fact, Mars is closest to us on Jan the 27th, when it'll be at a distance of about 100 million kilometres and at a magnitude of minus 1.3. Oppositions of Mars, this is what we call it, they occur at intervals of about 780 days. But because Mars has an eccentric orbit, in fact the Earth has to a lesser extent, the distance of Mars at opposition varies quite widely. If Mars is at its closest point to the Sun, we call that at perihelion, and the Earth at its most distant point, the distance will be the smallest. And so Mars will have the greatest angular size. And you may remember that happened about two apparitions ago when Mars was at its closest for about 60,000 years, had an angular size of 25 arc seconds. At the opposite extreme, when Mars is at Apelium, the angular size only reaches about 14 arc seconds. And sadly, this is the case this year so we're not really going to be able to see as much detail on the surface. Very nicely, it's actually running through the constellation of Cancer, as I mentioned, and will be just above the Beehive Cluster around the 27th of January. The Moon, actually, near full, will also be in close attendance over the next couple of days. So do have a look at Mars if you can. If you've got a telescope of four inches or more, you should be able to see some details. Um, the North Polar Cap is tilted towards us. That's a brilliant white colour. You should certainly be able to see that. Slight pity for small telescopes is that the most prominent dark feature, Certis Major, passes behind a limb in the early evening towards the end of January and so won't be seen best. As Mars Day is similar in length to ours, in fact, you tend to see the same face at the same time for quite a while. So you have to wait a bit till you see some of the other parts of the surface. I mentioned Saturn earlier. Around the 11th of January, there's quite a nice time, if you have a telescope, to have a look at its satellites. Rhea, which is at magnitude 9.7, is very close to Titan, just under magnitude plus 8. And you should see um, these with a, a relatively small telescope. Dione is actually close to the rings on Titan's side. That's 10.4 magnitude. Close by Mimas is at magnitude 12.9. Then on the opposite side of Saturn is Enceladus at magnitude nearly 12. Those would be visible if you have a 8 to 10 inch scope or if you try and take a sort of a 30 second exposure with the camera, you should be able to pick them up. Well, that's, I think, enough for the highlights this month. Not as many as some, but I think Mars, certainly, if you have a telescope, is something to be looking out for.
Well, finally, something for those of you who live in the Southern Hemisphere, but I hope it'll be of interest to those in the North as well. Close by to the small Magellanic Cloud, which will be fairly low in the southwest in the evening, is a globular cluster called 47 Tucani. We usually call it 47 Tuck for short. Now, it's normally regarded as the second brightest globular cluster in the sky, uh, second to Omega Centauri, which is also a southern hemisphere object. But there's a bit of doubt about Omega Centauri, which may well be the nucleus of a galaxy whose outer parts have been stripped off due to the proximity of our own Milky Way galaxy. So it could be 47 Tuck is the biggest and brightest of our globular clusters at magnitude 4. It dates from the time when our galaxy was formed about 12 billion years ago, is a spherical group of stars about 120 light years across and has a mass of about a million solar masses. So that's the order of number of stars within it. They are very tightly packed towards the centre, only about one-tenth of a light year apart. The nearest star to us, our own sun, is uh, 4.2 light years away, so that's pretty tight. And that has actually had an effect upon objects that we call neutron stars, and specifically those we call pulsars, which are rotating neutron stars that, as they rotate, send out beams of usually radio, occasionally light waves, that sweep around the sky like an interstellar lighthouse. When these are born, they might typically be spinning 30 to 50 times a second, but they relatively quickly slow down. However, if a slow neutron star, it may well have actually stopped being a pulsar once they rotate less than about twice every second. They they don't really emit very easily. If one of these happens to be close to a larger star passing close by, these things still have got the mass, typically more than of our sun, about 1.2 solar masses. And so they can attract material off the passing star. This transfers angular momentum to them, and they spin up. And many of them become what are called millisecond pulsars, whose periods can be measured in milliseconds, spinning quite quickly. The fastest known millisecond pulsar is spinning about 716 times per second. In the heart of 47 Takani, astronomers have now discovered about 2627 of these millisecond pulsars. And their periods raise upwards from about 50 hertz through several hundred hertz. If you apply the pulse rate as we receive it on Earth, these are radio pulses, of course, to a loudspeaker cone, because the pulses are so rapid, we don't hear them as pulses, we hear a tone. And so you could argue that these are sort of singing stars in a sort of funny way. We've put a special link in to get you to those sounds easily. If you go to jodcast.net forward slash pulsar sounds, that will give you the website on which we have the pulsar sounds of some individual pulsars. And at the bottom, in fact, you can listen to 16 of the pulsars within 47 Tacorni, individually first and then as a sort of a stellar cacophony at the end. So jogcast.net forward slash pulsar sounds. Well, I hope you enjoy listening to that uh, and have a very good month observing the sky.
Thanks, Ian. Now, here's what you have had to say about the Jodcast uh, since Jodcast Live. Jen, take us through the uh, the feedback for the fa- for Facebook. Right. Well, on Facebook, we've had a lot of feedback about Jodcast Live, both from people who came to the event and people who were following us on Ustream and Twitter. So Chris Ward says, thanks to everyone for a great day. I thoroughly recommend going along should the team be crazy enough to want to do it again sometime. Uh, Katie Calvert is wearing her Jogcast t-shirt with pride and wants to know what the team had for breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, today I had a chocolate biscuit because it's just after Christmas, so I'm I'm Uh, eating random food at the moment. I I had porridge with uh, a sliced banana, raisins, golden syrup, then mixed spice... And a bit of hot chilli powder, just to open up my sinuses. I had toast. I'm pretty boring. I had a fruit salad and a cup of tea. Um, Also on Facebook, Christopher Kirkland said, Watching the Jogcast live on Ustream and being able to keep in contact via Twitter made this event a real treat. And he was looking forward to finding out what the embargoed bit was, but obviously that's come out now and that's not no longer embargoed. Uh, Thomas Murphy said the December edition was great. It was even more fun to be in the audience. And that we should make Jogcast Live a yearly event. And that's something that I kind of want to do and I'm kind of <laughs> dreading. <laughs> yeah, it took a lot of effort. I don't know what you guys think. But we are we are contemplating having a meetup in a pub in Manchester, not to record an episode of the Jodcast, but just to sit and chat with listeners, because that was one thing about the day that we didn't really have much chance to sit and talk to listeners too much. So yeah, we might meet up in a pub one evening. Unsurprisingly, at Jogcast Live, we overran. <laughs> <laughs> So check out the forum for news about a Jod pub. And speaking of the forum, we've had comments from Starbug, who said, It was great to hear it all again. Um, really nice to hear the Sir Francis interview again, too. What a lovely chap. Thanks, everyone. Have a great Christmas. And also from Earth Unit, who said, I second Starbug. Great to hear the Sir Francis interview on the show again. Fantastic bit of editing. Um, I hope everyone has a great Christmas and best wishes for the new year. Jod on. So thanks for that. And on the website, we had two comments that were unrelated to Jodcast Live. One was from Mr. Moose, who's listening to us in South America, and he even sent us a link to Google Maps to show us where he was in South America listening, and he reckons there's probably no one else nearby to him. So if, you, if you're listening in South America, please do let us know. Also, thanks to Brian Harrison, who pointed out that 3C84, which we mentioned on a previous episode of the Jodcast in relation to ALMA, I think it was one of the first objects ALMA antennas were looking at, that it's actually a safer galaxy and not a quasar. And he should know because he did his PhD on it. So thank you to those people who got in touch via the website. And over on Twitter, thanks to Pi and Idonia, who I think is actually Katie Calvert, who was at the Jodcast Live event. So thanks to them for their nice comments. And while we've been recording this Jodcast, we're actually on a second take, which no one will know. But we, we recorded the entire episode and we found out we weren't recording. So we're on our take two and we've been sharing that on Twitter. So thanks to Physics Chris and Chrissy North as well for their comments during the recording. And of course, you can get in touch with us via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. So thanks then to everyone who has listened over the past four years, and thank you to our interviewees for giving us their time, especially between Christmas and New Year, to uh, have their interviews recorded. And thanks, of course, to all of you for downloading us. Uh, so until next time, jod on. Bye, guys. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Chucks away.
Wahey! Two, one, blast off.